Um, my name is Aaron Johnson. I'm the director of youth here at Riverbend Community Church, and I'm excited to have an opportunity to be with you tonight to dive into God's Word. I hope you're ready. I hope you have your Bible handy, uh, ready to turn to our text this evening. If you would, go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Well, we all miss you very much. Uh, this is a staff that is hard at work seeking to connect with you uh, by whatever means available to us. Obviously, the tech crew is working hard to uh, have the availability to worship uh, live with you. I'm grateful to Troy and his team for their hard work. You wouldn't believe what goes on behind the scenes to make this happen. And uh, we as ministry leaders are eager to be with you again, as I know you are uh, very eager to be here as well. And our day is coming. We will be back together soon. We will celebrate together. But we have something to celebrate tonight. And I think we'll find that from the word of God as we study it. So I pray that I'll be faithful to the text. I pray that you'll be faithful to follow along and that we'll see God's glory in this. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if uh, you're not familiar, this is one of uh, what is called the pastoral epistles in Scripture. This is a letter written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy is uh, one who was uh, grown up in the faith um, at Paul's instruction. And obviously Paul had been sharing with him for quite some time how to shepherd and lead a flock. And I think we'll see some of that instruction tonight as we look into the text. But I, I think there may be a tendency at times when we look at the pastoral epistles Oftentimes, we, it's possible that we'll simply consider them as a text for simply church leadership. However, I want to highly encourage you that we don't look at the text that way. And as a matter of fact, I think as we study, we'll begin to see the value of it for the entire church. Uh, so hopefully we can remove those tendencies, potentially, if they're there, and glean from Scripture this evening uh, that we would be sanctified uh, by faith in His Word. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, consider some of the things that we might find in the pastoral epistles. There are some topics that, that you could find, uh, some of which we'll touch on tonight, uh, discerning between true and false teaching. Um, in, in the pastoral epistles, we see Jesus' purpose, purpose in coming to man and humbling himself to coming to us and coming to us. And we see in the pastoral epistles God's design and the conduct of the church and in the responsibilities and the qualifications for church leadership for which it is observable to the church and we play a part in that as well. We have uh, the upcoming ordination of new elders uh, here before long this Sunday. And then other topics within the pastoral epistles would involve the love of money, uh, the danger of pride, how we might as Christians endure suffering. Uh, we can uh, get a greater understanding of the power of God's word and, and really the importance of living out our newness in Christ. These are all topics that can be found in the pastoral epistles and these are worthy areas for all of us for our growth as Christians. I believe a study in God's word will bring about an appreciation for God's revealed word discovered in these pastoral epistles let's pause and pray before we read our text heavenly father thank you for this evening thank you for the leadership we have 
uh, in worship toward you from the band, uh, from the shepherds we have in the faith that uh, lead us daily in your word and work along the front lines of ministry. I thank you for the tech team and all those involved in making this possible this evening. Lord, we're grateful to you. You have saved a people for yourself that you continue to sanctify that we may reflect you in your glory. It is our joy to worship you, Lord, and I pray that our time in the text this evening would lead us to greater worship. And we ask for a greater measure of faith, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'd like to read verses 14 through 26. Beginning in verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, Remind them of these things. And solemnly charge them in the presence of God to not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So as we study this text tonight, I'd like to bring about four specific points. These are four perspectives on shepherding and the church. And the first point is this. And I want to warn you, this is the lengthiest point. So when four hours go by and I'm still on the first point, hang in there. (laughs) Point number one, the Lord's warning for losing a Christ-centered focus. And we see this in verses 14 through 18. So obviously this is a letter written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy had 
uh, a shepherding role amongst the flock, specifically to the church at Ephesus, but likely also to the various churches throughout Asia Minor. It's hard to say where he was exactly during this time, but he certainly had a flock to shepherd. And in this, there was a festering dilemma, a major problem. What was the problem? The problem was that there was unnecessary and destructive quarreling over words. There was destructive quarreling within the church. So let's look at what Paul's instruction was to Timothy in light of this context. We see in verse 14 some key words. Specifically, Paul intends to charge them through Timothy. He says, Solemnly charge them in the presence of God and do not wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Charge them, Paul says. This is a warning. This is a do not warning. And he says to do this in the presence of God. This is under the authority of God Almighty, our Creator. And the instruction, the warning, is do not wrangle about words. Do not wrangle about words. When when I think of that text, a natural reading might cause you to think of Scrabble. Have you ever wrangled over words playing a Scrabble game? I know I, I have. Wabbit. Have you ever played the word wabbit? That's not a word. That's not a word. Actually, it is. It's a Scottish word, but I won't wrangle. This is actually a reference to the permeating false teaching of the time. Do not wrangle about words. And the focus here is on philosophy and man's so-called ability to reason. Now, I believe that God has given us minds to think. But there were Greek philosophies that believed that man had a pure ability to reason. We know that the whole man has been impacted by sin and the fall that we read about in Genesis 3. So the danger here, what Paul is talking about, is not to discuss, not to rely upon the sayings of men. This is a warning not to get entangled in philosophical discussions. What good does it do? What good does it do to simply rely on the conjurings and the thoughts of men? Well, look at verse 14. Paul, in instructing Timothy, says that they are useless. This is a useless activity. And there's a product, there is a result in taking part in these things. It leads to the ruin of the hearers, those that are listening, those that are watching, those that are learning. It leads to their ruin. This is a destructive activity. Now, here's the beauty. Let's be careful to consider the words before us in the text. Notice that Paul's warning, the do not warning of of not wrangling about words, comes with a particular care package. 
Maybe you've received a care package over the last month. Somebody has dropped something off to you as it's difficult to go to the store these days. Look what Paul has given to us in the text. Look what Paul has given to Timothy and his hearers in the form of a care package. He begins verse 14 with these words. Remind them of these things. Remind them of these things. There are several possible considerations for what Paul is pointing to there in verse 14. Without belaboring and going into all the details of those potential options, I think it is obvious, it appears to be the point, to look to the immediate context, the immediately preceding context. So if you have your Bibles open, just look at the immediate context of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. And this text, it starts with three very beautiful words. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, Paul says, to Timothy, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Look look at those specific words. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Christ's resurrection is the substance of our faith. We have our hope in Christ's resurrection. Our Savior lives He is the descendant of David. This this is pointing to Christ as the promised one. And there's a particular emphasis on his humanity. He came to us in humility. He was amongst us. He lived the sinless life that we could not live so that he would be qualified to go to the cross on our behalf. This is worthy of as Paul says, of his suffering, of his imprisonment. Paul is willing to contend for the faith, the faith of the resurrected Christ. And notice Paul says there that the word of God is not imprisoned. It is powerful and it is active. These are good reminders from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And he says, remind them of these things. Look at the exclusivity in verse 10 of that text. For though, it's for those who are chosen that they may obtain, obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul ends that text with a particular contrast. He begins with two positives and ends with two negatives. 
Look at the first two. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. Then he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If by faith we are dead to our sins in Christ, as he has taken them to the cross, we will also live with him. This is the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And with that particular conditional sanctification comes a progressive sanctification. He says, if we endure, if we persevere, we will also reign with him. This is the promises of the riches that come with Christ Jesus and the future of eternal glory in Christ. What great promises. But let's complete the contrast as we see it given by Paul. He says, but if we deny him, if we deny him, we also will, he also will deny us. If we reject Christ, we are not his. If we are faithless, if we reject him, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is a promise to who he is. He is the Savior, and there's but one means to salvation. It's through Jesus Christ, and that is through the revelation of the Word of God. There's one way of salvation. So this promise, this truth that we see in the immediate text, it presents the solution to Timothy's festering dilemma amongst the congregation. The problem was that there was unnecessary, destructive quarreling over words. There was false teaching. So what's the solution to the problem? The solution is the word of truth. It points to Jesus Christ. It points to the one way of salvation. It points to the one revelation. It points to the one eternal hope in Christ. So let's look back to our main text, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we'll go on to the next verse, verse 15. And again, this is instruction to Timothy. And he says, Paul says to Timothy, Be diligent, Timothy. Be diligent. Be hard at work. Be goal-oriented. Have a quality work ethic. Work hard. Be diligent, Timothy. To do what? That he would present himself approved to God. To present yourself approved to God. Again, this is under God's authority. And the beautiful promise that we see from Scripture is God is already at work within Timothy. He's already at work within Timothy that Timothy may therefore present himself approved to God. For what fashion? For what, for what activity? As a workman. As a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Be good at your trade, Timothy. Be good at your trade. I uh, was recently at the Magic Kingdom, Kingdom, not recent enough, uh, and I got to see somebody working on glasswork. Have you ever seen a, a glass artist making vases and, and bowls? It's, it's quite a skill and a practice. And this, a lot of these things don't happen in mere minutes. It takes great time to, to craft something beautiful out of glass. And I've always been inspired 
by those that work with their hands to build things. Those that are in construction. Uh, there are men within our church that build homes, that build buildings. They have men that work with and for them to do these things. It amazes me. And there are certain structures, just the craftsmanship captures my attention. Paul is telling Timothy to be good at what he does. Be a workman who does not need to be ashamed. What is Timothy's particular trade? What is his activity? Right there in the text it says, accurately handling the word of truth. Timothy is to accurately handle the word of truth. How do false teachers handle the word of God? They twist it. They manipulate the text to meet their own agendas or their own particular philosophies. Timothy is to engage against false teaching. How so? By accurately handling the word of God. So what is the best cure for false teaching? It is fervently preaching the truth. Let it work. Let it do what it does. It is effective. It has the power to save. It has the power to bring perseverance and endurance in the body of believers. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a memorable verse. It says that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All that we need for sanctification, for our growth, for putting sin to death, for becoming more like Christ, for discipling others, is found in the Word of God. Have you ever had a quality kitchen knife? We've, we've got some decent knives at home. My sister used to sell knives, kitchen knives. Have you ever been to a hibachi restaurant? You ever seen those guys handle knives? Could you imagine me serving at a hibachi restaurant, for those of you that know me? I would probably end up with twice as many fingers as I started with when I began cooking. That's 50% off. That's a good deal. <laughs> I can't imagine using knives, cutlery, like they use at a hibachi restaurant. That takes training. That takes skill. Timothy is to be good at his trade. Consider that one who handles the word accurately, one who handles it well, remains committed to the word's intention in all its purity, to its purpose. So those who teach, those who preach the word must handle it well. Look at Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and of spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What's the solution for false teaching? Fervently teaching and preaching the word of God. It gets to the heart. It gets to the inner man. It gets to the thoughts of men, the intentions. 
the meditations of the heart. So the nature of the labor that Timothy is to be actively a part of, that shepherds, teachers of the faith that are, they're actively to be a part of, the nature of this labor as a workman is not to create or craft anything. Rather, it's to be a good steward. To be a good steward of what God has freely given him. The revelation of the truth. What a gift. What a treasure to be handled well. Carefully wielding what has been entrusted to him. You'll, you'll see in the text that almost in the same breath, Paul emphasizes the dangers of the aforementioned wrangling or quarreling about words. Yet, he's even more specific in this false teaching and its dangers. Look at verse 16. It says, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. He instructs Timothy to avoid worldly and empty chatter. That's what the New American Standard Bible says. The ESV calls it irreverent babble. The New King James Version calls it profane and idle babblings. These are godless by nature. Worldly, empty, irreverent, profane, and godless chatter will have its effect also. Verse 16, Paul says, it will lead to further ungodliness. John, John Calvin likened this to a, a deep whirlpool spinning to be caught up and entangled in false teaching is to be in a, a scenario or condition where there is no escape. And it progresses within you. And this, this progress is not only deep internally for the individual, it also has a widespread effect. It spreads far and wide. Look at verse 17. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Their talk will spread like gangrene. This is an analogy. Obviously, we don't take this literally. But there's a didactic nature to analogies. It teaches us something. Gangrene, if you're not familiar, is a condition uh, where dead tissue is caused either by an infection or the loss of blood flow. This is a great analogy in Paul's instruction to Timothy. Because likewise, false teaching infects. It infects its hearers, as Paul has already instructed. And it causes spiritual decay in the church. And think, think about the usage of words here, that it spreads like gangrene, gangrene being a condition of, of decay because of the loss of blood flow. The lifeblood of the church is sapped when the teaching is false, when, when heresy is permitted. The solution to false teaching is the word of truth, the word of God. In the text here, the sense of danger is heightened by Paul specifically as he names two particular men. These men are actively preaching heresy. 
Look there again in verse 17. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Remember, Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. And under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he specifically names two men that are actively preaching and teaching falsely. These are real men of a real time in history spreading false truths. Enemies of God. They're infamously named in Scripture. Can you imagine? In verse 18, Paul says that they were men who have gone astray from the truth. Uh, this isn't the first time Paul brings up Hymenaeus. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, there are strong words about Hymenaeus as well. And this is a reminder to Timothy and for all of us that false, te- false teaching can begin within the church. False te- teaching can begin amongst us. As a matter of fact, it can begin here. My, my thinking, my reasoning is not pure apart from the sanctifica- sanctifica- wow, sorry, sanctifying work of Christ through his word on my heart and mind. I must be renewed by the word to know truth and to share it. False teaching can begin here. So how do we protect the church from false teaching? How do we protect the church from false teaching? We have everything we need. We have been given everything we need to protect against false teaching. Well, Number one, as Paul has already instructed, there is the standard of truth. We can ask, is it biblical? We can compare the thoughts and sayings of men to Scripture. Are they biblical? Hymenaeus and Philetus strayed from the truth. Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the first thing we need in protecting the church from false teaching is the word of God. And we also have, as Scripture teaches us, the guidance of the Holy Spirit as Christ promised. And you can look at John 16, 13. But there's a third thing that the Lord has provided us to protect the church from false teaching. And we'll see that further in the text. So what is it that these heretics, Hymenaeus and Philetus and others, what were they teaching? They were teaching as verse 18 says, that the resurrection has already taken place. The resurrection has already taken place. Now, this is not a reference to Christ's bodily resurrection. Rather, this is likely referring to argument over the bodily resurrection of believers, the future bodily resurrection of the church. This this false teaching is likely linked to Greek philosophy, to the idea, ideas of the Gnostics that anything material, even the body, the human body, is inherently evil. Yet the spirit within a man is pure. It is naturally good. 
And you can see the tendency or the willingness to consider that the, re- the reason, reasoning ability of man is therefore pure and can lead to a right relationship with God simply by the thoughts of men. The idea likely that was permeating at the time was that the resurrection of the body of believers was merely a spiritual awakening within, a, within the church that occurs at salvation. At least that's a prominent thought. This has to also call Christ's bodily resurrection into question. If this line of Greek thinking, this Gnostic view, is that the physical, the body, the material is inherently evil, then they would discount the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul combats that heresy. If you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul addresses that issue, and and basically the crux of his message is this, that the bodily resurrection of the church of believers stands with the truth that Christ was also resurrected and that he lives. That truth of the bodily resurrection of believers falls when Christ's resurrection is discounted. And the Old Testament teaches of the future resurrection of believers. In the book of Job in chapter 19 verses 25 through 27 and in Daniel 12:2, the Old Testament addresses and points forward to the future glory of those secured by faith. So that's the first point of the message that there's a warning not to lose a Christ-centered focus not to lose a focus on the gospel remember Jesus Christ and as I said before the last three points are shorter so hang with me the second point is the Lord's will for his church the Lord's will for his church and specifically we find that in verse 19 which reads, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Isn't this a beautiful verse? This is a gorgeous verse. God's will and purpose for the church cannot be thwarted. It cannot be thwarted by the efforts of men. He begins that verse with, the word nevertheless. Nevertheless, despite opposition, despite false teaching, despite the efforts of men to do harm, God's promises, God's truth surrounding his church stands. It's lasting. He says it is the firm foundation of God. It stands. This is the biblical truth for the church, which is unshakable. Promises like these have kept me over the last several weeks. When we see the upheaval of our world, spinning thoughts and speculations as to what truth is or the reasonings for what we're going through or how to fix it, there's a word of promise that stands. And specifically, as believers in Christ, we can trust in God's promises for his church 
for those that have faith in Christ alone for salvation, that he will sanctify, that he will keep. Look, look at what he promises. This comes with a seal of promise in verse 19. And there are two parts to that promise. First, the Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows who are his. This points to the election of believers. It shows God's sovereignty over salvation. And there's a second part to this promise. Champion this thought with me as we read it. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. A natural reading of that text alone seems to suggest a particular rule or yet another law. But, but I find here, as you consider how all of Scripture pours into this truth, it is rather a principle. It is a principle founded upon biblical truth. Everyone redeemed by faith in Christ, bearing the hope of the future resurrection of the church, is free. We are free from the bondage of sin. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. As I continue to read and my mind is renewed by Scripture, I see freedom in this verse. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are able to walk by the Spirit in obedience by faith, as Galatians 5 instructs us. The church is actively being set apart for God and for his glory. He's sanctifying a people unto himself. So what is God's will for the church, according to our text? It's to be sanctified, and we're to be sanctified in the truth. Look at verse 20. Yet another analogy that Paul uses. This is an analogy of vessels, uh, such as dishes or bowls. Verse 20, Paul says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. We're familiar with household vessels. In particular, I am very familiar with household vessels. Do you have a favorite ice cream bowl? I do. My wife doesn't know which one it is, but it's not amongst the regular bowls. It's with, it's with the mixing bowls, right? We have our favorite vessels, but consider a first century perspective on this analogy. We have the, the luxuries of modern plumbing, right? Consider the first century perspective on, on this analogy. Vessels were used for all sorts of things within the home. Before we get ahead of ourselves, trying to determine the underlying truths of this analogy, what is it teaching? Before we get ahead of ourselves and try to decide who amongst us are the gold and silver vessels and the wood and earthenware vessels, before we get ahead of ourselves, I have a list which I will read to you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We've got to look to verse 21. We can't get ahead of ourselves here. Look what verse 21 reveals about this analogy. Paul says to Timothy, therefore, according to this analogy, 
if anyone cleanses himself from these things which he has mentioned beforehand, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. What does this verse suggest? What is Paul suggesting in verse 21? If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor. I see that we all need cleaning. We all need cleansing. We all need refining. We all need restoration. We all need redemption to be used for honorable purposes, to be sanctified, to be useful to the Lord for good works. If anyone aspires to be used of God for his glory and for his church, he must be sanctified. He must be made holy. Let's not get prideful here. We're all familiar with Ephesians 2.10. It says, For we are his workmanship. He has been working and crafting within us to make us new. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for these good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So to protect the church from heresy, we have three things. We have scripture, the standard of truth. We have the guidance of the Holy Spirit that was promised by Jesus Christ to lead us into obedience by faith. And thirdly, which is also our third point tonight, is we have the Lord's provision of shepherds amongst us. We have the Lord's provision of shepherds. We'll see this in verses 20 through 23. So look at Paul's instruction in verses 20 to 23. He begins by saying to Timothy, he says, now flee, now flee. Run, go. This is a reminder of the freedom that we have in Christ. Timothy, you are free. Flee from these things. What, what is he to, to flee from? He is to flee from youthful lusts. I think it's easy to read that text today and immediately think of sexual immoralities that permeate our culture today. But I don't think the text is limited to that, although I think it is included. It could certainly include sexual immorality, but it's likely a reference to immature passions, to pride, to greed, to jealousy, looking to serve oneself, looking to establish one's own kingdom. These are characteristic of youthful, immature passions. And if we think about the text as a whole, this is probably a knock back at Hymenaeus and Philetus and those among them that are spreading false teaching, enemies of God and his truth, seeking to establish for themselves a following that would puff them up and would look to their empty philosophies. Now flee, Timothy. Flee youthful lusts. And Paul says to Timothy to pursue. This is to strive after. What is, what is Timothy to pursue? To long for and to work hard for righteousness. Christ-likeness. The freedom we have in Christ and the freedom we have to walk by the Spirit allows us to walk in obedience by faith. 
Christ-likeness. This is the sanctification of this young man, that he would grow in the faith. And that is the next word, faith, knowing and trusting in the truth and the hope that is in Christ alone. Pursue righteousness, Timothy. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Is love not the mark? Is it not the mark of like-mindedness with Christ? I think we see that in Philippians chapter two. It comes with his humility. Christ did not have to come to us. He did not have to die for us. We would not know the love of God apart from Jesus Christ. It is the mark of like-mindedness with him. Timothy is to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Peace is only possible in Christ. And look, look at the end of that instruction particularly. He's to pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, with fellow believers. And I think we can look at that verse pretty accurately in two ways. These are growing characteristics of all believers. If we are being sanctified in the faith, we are fleeing from sin. We, we are putting to death youthful lusts, immature passions, and instead we are pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. These are growing characteristics of all believers. But I think there's also a possible connection here to community. <laughs> and we long to be together again. And one of the reasons I long to be with you is because I need you to sharpen me. As you walk under the authority of the word of God, I need you to sharpen me. And my desire as a believer is to sharpen you. That we would be discipling one another in the faith. But particularly in, particularly in this text, we are seeing God's instruction toward the sharpening of a shepherd. Let's look at what the Lord is doing through Paul's instruction. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Timothy is to refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. In other words, He's not to rely on the thoughts of men as many have and have gone astray from the truth. He's to recognize their inherent danger. And this is not just for himself. This is also for those he leads. The reminder here is the, the pointing to the product or, or the result of these foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. This is the opposite of the peace that Timothy is to pursue, that we are to pursue in Christ. The Lord is preparing Timothy to lead the way of biblical lasting peace. This is Christ's word. This is Christ-centered perspective. I love our elders. I love our shepherds here at Riverbend that continually point us to the word of truth and its Christ-centeredness, that we would look very acutely at the truth of the word of God. Find the gospel in it. Find saving faith, saving truth that leads us to know Christ, to be set free from the bondage of sin and death and have the freedom to walk in obedience by faith to one day share in future glory, the future bodily resurrection and the, and the sharing with Christ in heaven.
These are truths we can hardly fathom in their entirety. But boy, we can look to them by faith, can't we? And this leads us to the fourth point. The fourth and last point from the text. The Lord's servant, the Lord's shepherd, and the hope of restoration. So we'll finish by looking at verses 24 through 26. Look at the characteristics of the Lord's bondservant, the shepherd, Timothy, the leader of a congregation. The instruction to those that would lead a body of believers. Verse 24 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Must not be quarrelsome. Must not be argumentative. Must not be a seeker of arguments. Seeking to establish personal kingdoms. Rather, seeking the furtherance of God's kingdom. So in contrast, he must be something. He must be kind to all. He must be kind to all. This is not selective. It is kind to everyone. Think of, think of all the variety of people that make up the body of believers in Christ. We come from all backgrounds, all nationalities, all languages, all tongues, all testimonies from what the Lord has brought us from. Timothy, shepherds are to be kind to all. He must be able to teach. And this is beautiful because it's a reference back to the significance and the importance of the truth, the truth of God's word. This is a simple thought, but there is no genuinely successful ministry apart from the word of God. It must be the centerpiece. We must rally around God's truth because apart from it, we're left to ourselves and our empty thinking and our worldly passions. There is no salvation apart from it, and there is no sanctification. He must be able to teach to rightly handle the word of God. He must be patient when wronged. This, this is the activity of the pursuit of peace in gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. I think this aligns with Christ's thinking. This aligns with Christ's love towards us. That love is unmerited. We have not earned it. Shepherds are called to be gentle, correcting those who are in opposition, even enemies of the truth. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, so why? So why? Why must Timothy lead in these things? Why must a shepherd lead in these areas? Not to be quarrelsome, to be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and in gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Because the biblical shepherd always has an eye towards restoration. That is the call of the minister in the faith to seek to do what God is doing and that is to restore a people unto himself look at verses 25 and 26 with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil 
having been held captive by him to do his will. That God may grant them repentance. If you are a believer in Christ, if you have been saved by faith because of the word of truth, because of God's unmerited favor, we all at once were in need of the gift of repentance. That we were brought to an understanding of our sin and, and by the word of truth that we were able to see it for what it is that it is, that it is an offense to God and that the wages of sin, is, uh, of sin is death the wages of sin is death that's an eternal death the gift of repentance is a beautiful one and the shepherd always has an eye towards restoration because, because it is the will of God to restore to bring a people to himself. This is the bride of Christ. God may, that God may grant them repentance to a knowledge of the truth. This is the remedy that they may see and believe and understand and have faith that Christ is the remedy for their sin dilemma. That they may come to their senses. This isn't, this isn't contradictory. This doesn't point back to man's ability to reason it's, it's actually the opposite that they may come to their senses no longer under deception which is natural to man we are under the sway of the devil he is the leader of deception going away from the truth Hymenaeus, Philetus, anyone who falls under false teaching is under the deception of Satan and naturally we all are and in need of Christ and his word that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. This is salvation. This is salvation. Having been held captive by him to do his will. That's past tense. We were once under the sway of Satan and his deception to do his will, but because of the power of the word of God in the inner man, we are rescued from the bondage of sin and death trusting in Christ alone for salvation that we would walk according to God's will and his will is to restore his church the bride of Christ these are beautiful thoughts and church I want you to consider I have the opportunity to stand here and preach tonight amid the context of many sermons many Bible studies that have been led by the shepherds amongst us I know many of you have expressed your gratitude for those that work hard in the faith and in the word to teach us every week, every day. I'm co-laborers with these men that work hard on, behalf, on, on our behalf. They sharpen me daily. Are you grateful for those that lead? In that, if Christ is calling shepherds to lead in a Christ-centered, Christ-like-minded way, are we not also called to think the same way? This is the restoration of his church. This is beautiful. Church, we miss you. We want to be with you. We get to, whether we're together physically or apart, we get to rejoice and champion and come together in the faith by his word. The renewing of the mind and heart. The restoration of his church for his kingdom's sake and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your truth that combats heresy. 
Lord, our hearts and minds are naturally opposed to you. And we have been deceived and we need the escape, the rescue that can only come through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your revealed truth. Lord, we are grateful for shepherds like Timothy and like Paul and those that have come after these men that point us to these truths faithfully. Guard them, Lord. Protect them. Give them joy and their work. Help them to see and have moments to see observably the restoration of the body of Christ. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.